With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom by simply visiting www.realitycheck.radio forward slash donate to make a difference today. Good morning and welcome back to Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio. You are with Marie and joining me now, Ramesh Thakur. He's he's a Brownstone Institute Senior Scholar, a former United Nations Assistant Secretary General, Emeritus Professor in the Crawford School of Public Policy, the Australian National University. And welcome back to Reality Check Radio. I know you've spoken to our Paul and it's great to have you here on Counterculture. Great to be back, Marie. Thank you. More importantly, you're also the author of the book, Our Enemy, the Government, How COVID Enabled the Expansion and Abuse of State Power. So, Ramesh, how is the government our enemy? Well, let's go back to the end of the Second World War, a good place to start on many issues. But after that, during the Cold War, we had the rise of the national security state. And during the 80s, while I was living in New Zealand, a New Zealand society rebelled against elements of that to do with the, the nuclear weapons madness. Then we had the rise of the administrative state. I mean, the national security state, I think most people recognize, so don't, don't just spend time on that. But the administrative state is interesting as well. Uh, in a sense, a good place to start on that would be to go back to the series, Yes, Minister and Yes, Prime Minister, where effectively technocrats, experts and civil servants acquired and were given and delegated more and more powers uh, of both a legislative and a judicial function. And so they began to issue directives with the force of law and to make determinations with the force of judgments. Uh, It was power without responsibility or accountability because the accountability still lay with parliament, but parliament had abdicated on its responsibility. And we saw that pretty much all over the Western world during the COVID years, where they just signed on the dotted line as told by the government, if asked, in fact, uh, and experts took over. And while initially this was the civil servants, more and more we've seen a class of experts take over the world uh, and, and give edicts that must be obeyed. Otherwise, you know, think of the instant fines. The idea that the police can issue instant fines of varying amounts, some quite substantial, uh, and against which there is no appeal uh, without having to go through courts uh, is quite preposterous on its own right. So you have the administrative state. Then, courtesy of Julian Assange, who's now facing his final Mm -hmm. appeal hearing, even as we speak, uh, and Edward Snowden in particular, we have the rise of the surveillance state, where we discover, I don't know about you, but I was horrified to discover the extent to which the state has been engaged in spying on us. And the other thing that's interesting about that is how the different states around the world actually share a common interest in expanding the surveillance powers at the expense of the citizens and marry that to various extradition agreements. Again, back to the Julian Assange case. Uh, And you have an enormous expansion of powers. And we have to remember through all this two other factors. One, there is no power that is given to a state 
that is voluntarily relinquished again. They take new powers, they will use it, keep it in reserve, and if any power can be abused, sooner or later it will be. Mm. It may not be in the mind of those who introduce it, they may be perfectly well-intentioned, but there will come a time mm. when ill-intentioned people will be in power, either on the administrative side or on the executive side, and they will abuse the laws. We've seen that it's an iron law politics. And the second one, of course, is that once governments acquire powers, they are very, very reluctant to give it back. Uh, and the history of even democratic regimes is an expansion of state power, centralization of power in the office of the prime minister, delegation of the exercise of power to the administrative state, uh, as in Sir Humphrey Appleby. Uh, and that keeps going on. And now, most recently in COVID, we have the rise of the biosecurity state, where citizens, instead of being treated as the masters of the politicians and the civil servants, are treated as potential biohazards, germ-carrying, disease carriers. Uh, until you prove that you're okay, you won't be allowed into the public square. And therefore, you must be vaccinated. And that digital certificate is proof, independently of the fact that the vaccines don't stop you getting infected and don't stop you transmitting your infection to others. So it becomes much more a societal control regime rather than a public health defense regime. And I think that was clear from the start, going back uh, to the Diamond Princess, the first ship, which is a petri dish for actual experiments instead of models where you're just feeding the assumptions you want in order to well, get a conclusion. It was hard, hard, real-world data, and it was it was ignored and and subsequently reinforced by the American warship, the Roosevelt, and the French warship, the Charles de Gaulle, which at two ends of the spectrum showed the vulnerability of elderly people in the worst possible living conditions before they realize there is a, a disease outbreak. Despite that, the fatality rates, whether you're looking at infection or case fatality rates, were actually quite low and not at all comparable to the Spanish flu, much closer to the Asian flu and the Hong Kong flu of the late 50s and 60s. And of course, with the Roosevelt and the Charles de Gaulle, it was clear that for the healthy, fit young males in, uh, or young people in general, uh, it was nothing to be worried about. It, it was no worse than an average flu, not even a bad flu. Uh, and the fatality rates were very, very low. So a lot of it was known from the start. A lot of it we were told about by very well-credentialed epidemiologists and other health authorities, infectious disease specialists. But the powers that be had their own narrative that they ran with. And I think looking back, you know, I'm instinctively averse to conspiracy theories uh, and, and addicted to cock-up theories. But I must say it becomes increasingly difficult with each passing years to avoid the suspicion that there's something going on that they're not aware of and it wasn't just incompetence, that there was some element of malfeasance by someone and we need to find out. But the end result was that instead of being the guardians and protectors of their citizens' freedoms and liberties and civil rights, won over hundreds of years of struggles 
a lot of it against the executive. Governments, in fact, signed on to institutions, systems of control, where they monitored what the people were doing, forced them to take tests, uh, put them under house arrest. You know, the, the, a cop abuses you on the street for no reason. You can take the police to the courts. Mm. Suddenly, they said, we are ordering mass house arrests, even though you may be healthy and you have committed no crime. And we said, great, give us more. Yeah, well, uh, here in New Zealand. And that was really, I don't know which was more shocking. I like yeah. that too. I think yeah. of the extent to which people complied happily with it and wanted tougher and more and longer and earlier surprised me more than the fact that government were delighted. New Zealand, we were exceptionally compliant here, but of course you live in now in Australia. And yeah. I mean, for, for me, that poor woman, the pregnant woman who was dragged out. Zoe Buller. Yes, about um, after placing a Facebook post, to me that, I just could not believe oh. in the vision on that. And also the juxtaposition too of how only literally months, I don't know whether that that vision was before or after the vision of George Floyd and the lack of outrage for what happened to her from in, in most quarters versus the outrage that happened with um, the vision on what happened to George Floyd. Yeah. And I'm thinking, well, how can people put these two things side by side and not just see they're both outrageous? And, and run with that uh, analogy because it's a very good one. We had, you know, you're not wearing a mask even when driving by yourself in a car and the cops will, will pull you over and find you instantly or arrest you uh, or shove you down to the pavement as happened in some cases. Uh, and the social distancing requirements, uh, when all the hundreds of years of evidence and knowledge showed that even as a family of five or six, three generations of families living together, you're actually better protected health-wise, a whole lot of you, if you go outside onto the beach or into the park on sunshine, than if you're forced to stay at home. But they force you to stay at home. And then suddenly you have, following the George Floyd incident, the BLM movements all over the world. Mm. And no, that's not a health threat. That's okay. You can go in the thousands on the streets. And the police are told just stand by and watch them. Uh, and some, of course, joined in taking the knees. So, yes, we had those. And, and, and then the number of health authority, authorities who are experts who wrote a letter saying that it is perfectly OK because, in fact, racism is a bigger threat to your health. I mean, that just destroyed their credibility completely. So the, all that happened. And the other thing they did, of course, was the collusion, the coordinated collusion between big state big farmer, big tech, big media, to create a censorship industrial complex where dissidents and critics and contrarian voices, no matter how well-credentialed, no matter how responsibly communicated, were silenced, ostracized, thrown out of the public square. Many of them uh, put under tremendous social pressure. Uh, and it was pretty amazing. And that's where... Uh, the rise of institutions like the Brownstone Institute or the Daily Skeptic in the UK or their equivalents uh, that are not as well known, in, certainly in the English-speaking world, there might be in other uh, countries as well, I think was very important because it made it possible for people to realize they were not, in fact, alone. There were many others well-regarded people who shared their concerns and were trying to voice them. There were some brave people in these 
who kept on making the points. Uh, and, and some of these people are not just very well credentials. They are exceptionally nice, amiable, affable people. Uh, like Martin Kuldoff, ex-Harvard, mm. like Jay Bhattacharya from Stanford, like Sunitra Gupta, who has visited uh, our part of the world, uh, so has Jay Bhattacharya. Uh, and, and, and yet they were demonized and vilified and subjected to uh, most vile abuse. So all that created an atmosphere that in some respects resembled the preconditions for the rise of totalitarian regimes. And I'm sorry to say it, but one of the worst symptoms of that was Jacinda Ardern's statement, there will only be a single source of truth, and that's the Ministry of Health. Mm. Uh, and then you realize that the Director General of Health during those years is now co-chair of the WHO Working Group on Amendments uh, to the International Health Regulations. Mm. So the experts have really taken over, and the WHO, of course, is demanding uh, more powers, more resources, uh, and the right to reimpose this whenever it wants. The final thing, it's a long introductory statement, but the final thing worth remembering, we've only had, what, four or five real pandemics over the past 120-odd years, starting with the Spanish flu, the Asian flu, the Hong Kong flu, the avian flu, the swine flu, and then COVID. So it's actually a very rare event. Now I haven't done it, but if you look at the if you look at the total number of deaths worldwide between 1st January 2020 and 31st December 2023, the four years, I'd be surprised if COVID makes it even into the top 10. Mm in terms of the big killer diseases, it might. certainly won't make it into the top three or five. And yet all our health services were turned into COVID-only services, and we are now starting to pay the long-term price of that. Uh, that so in the UK, the melanoma uh, cancer deaths will hit around 12,000, and Europe becomes over 100,000. That's just one form of cancer, not even the biggest killer. And that's in the UK. I hate to think what the figures would be for a country like Australia, given the strength of the sun here. So I think all of that and to adapt something that Benjamin Franklin said, uh, those who privilege security over liberty end up with neither. I think we are seeing the same in this figure now. Those who sacrificed essential liberty in order to prolong the lives and remember those who are at or higher than life, average life expectancy were the only ones genuinely at risk. To prolong their lives by a few months, we now end up costing the lives of people at all ages over the long term, particularly in terms of the standard metric that was used until COVID, the quality metric, the quality adjusted life years, where the life of a healthy 20-year-old is much more valuable in life years than the life of an elderly 80-year-old, especially with comorbidities. Uh, and we have, as I said, ended up with sacrificing both liberty and health outcomes. Uh, and I think it might be difficult to do this while the generation that imposes these regulations is still in power. But I certainly hope the successor generation will look back 
and draw the very strong and harsh lessons from the madness and insanity from a public policy point of view that infected the whole world. Mm. So in the Western Hemisphere, we've got a lot of inquiries going on. New Zealand's is just beginning. They've had uh, either state or federal inquiries, I know, through Australia, the United Kingdom. The Australia is a complete farce. Yeah, so the then kingdoms is a farce as well. So yes, that, so then it, that's that's my question. I mean, they yeah, are but that's the present generation. Yeah, the and, and who did this are, are are reviewing themselves, so you don't expect anything else. And especially when there is a benchmark in the Western Hemisphere, you know, the one outlier being Sweden, mm-hmm. who were heavily criticised early on, yeah. but fortunately, their um and his name eludes me now. The, the and his Yes, and he stuck to his guns, and they had they stuck to proven health policy, mm-hmm. and they now have these these outcomes. I can't understand why these inquiries aren't using them as the benchmark to measure their own in- commissions of Go inquiry. Back to, yes, Prime Minister, you <laughs> have an inquiry whose results you know in advance mm. that favours you, and and all the questions in the. At least in the England part of the UK inquiry, it was very clear that the predetermined attitude is we should have had lockdowns sooner, had it last longer, and this should have been harder. Uh, and and, and the way they treated their witnesses was just absolutely disgraceful. Mm. So I, 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 they might yet shock us pleasantly, but as far as I'm concerned, I've given up on that one. The Australian no. one is, is, is a total farce. So, yeah. So what? Yeah, you can't let that stand in the way of good tyranny. Yeah. Uh, the interesting one is one the citizen inquiry in the Canada, which was good but completely ignored by the mainstream media. But also the official grand jury inquiry uh, in in Florida, uh, and that's coming up already with some very interesting results. So that might be the way forward. And I think we should not overlook Florida and Texas and South Dakota in particular in the United States. Remember, whatever else you might think of the United States, and the bottom line is that really is the last bastion of the defender of of freedoms and civil liberties and individual human rights, Mm. as opposed to collectivist tendencies. Uh, And the fact that they have a strong, robust federal system, unlike ours, which collapsed, and the prime minister disgracefully backed out of challenging uh, the closure of state borders. I don't think any other federal system did this quite like this either. So Australia was uh, ground zero in many ways, and Melbourne in particular, for all sorts of insanities. And no coincidence, Victoria, Melbourne had the worst outcomes. Mm. And it also is very distressing, I think, for many people to see a number of the perpetrators of that, of course, shuffled sideways into privileged positions elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And with zero consequence for the carnage. They've been keep receiving New Year's honours and Queen's Birthday honours and knighthoods and various things. And the most massive transfer of wealth from the poor and the working classes to the already rich and the laptop classes and, and, and the Zoom classes uh, and, and the rise of uh, COVID billionaires, uh, including in China, but not just in China. Uh, I'd like to know what Bill Gates' net assets were at the end of 2019 and what they are today. 
Mm. I think philanthropy is very profitable these days. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier about as time goes on that you can't help feeling that there is something, there's a niggle, that there is something more nefarious going on. Mm-hmm. Now, in an interview well, seven or eight months ago, you were asked around the WEF and, and you were more along the lines of sort of a, a collective group thing. And I have to admit, I certainly, when you look at the likes of Trudeau, um, Macron, uh, Jacinda Ardern, uh, Anthony Albanese, but it was Scott Morrison, I think, at that time, there is certainly an element of we, we want to look good to our mates. Yeah. Our five eye friends and and the like. So I can certainly appreciate that. But in in terms of something bigger, where do you think that something bigger sits? I'll, I'll answer that very clearly. I would like an independent, robust, and I don't know how we empower it, inquiry into the networks and connections between the Gates Foundation, Gavi, the Global Alliance Against Vaccines and not against vaccines, Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization, and CEPI, the, whatever it stands for, the Committee for Emergency Preparedness Against Infectious Disease. I think you will find a lot of the same names cropping up. And then the WHO. You don't need the WEF. I think that's a distraction. And, and the real experts network is are these. That's where the technocrats are. Uh, and then you can bring in some other sectors as well, but let's just stick to the health issues at the moment. You'll find a remarkably small coterie of people who know each other, consult each other, support each other, nudge their respective governments. Wouldn't this person be a good person to have as your health secretary or as your coordinator for COVID or whatever? Uh, And you begin to see very quickly the same names appearing again and again and again. That's where I would begin with. Mm. Because as I said, I, I think... I think we have seen the rise of the careerist politicians with no experience in any sector of life outside of politics. They go into student politics in university days. They join a party, become a staffer, wait for the next suitable vacancy, put their hands up, get selected uh, and get into parliament and end up being ministers. Uh, and it's astonishing that they have no life beyond that. Our Prime Minister is a very good example in Australia. Of He's nothing but a pure politician. Mm. I, mean, I, I, I thought Scotty Mo- Scott Morrison was certainly the worst Prime Minister in, in my conscious time that I've been living in Australia. But at least he did have some experience outside before. You can't even say that of uh, Anthony Albanese. So do you reckon Elbow's worse than Morrison? Or no, 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 I didn't Morrison? say that. No. <laughs> I think Morrison was worse. You think Morrison was I think was Morrison did have some experience outside. Albanese doesn't. Now, you know, give Albanese some time. He might prove himself worse than Morrison yet. Uh, But that will be hard. I I, I think whatever else you might say about Albanese, I think he does have some convictions. Morrison was the one politician that I know of who seemed to have absolutely zero conviction, entirely transactional, and and, and no sense of responsibility for things he said and no awareness, self-awareness. He was just incredibly uh, bad as any sort of a leader. He w- he should never have been promoted beyond a branch manager for a store. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know how he got to where he is. But the point is, in a sense, he's a metaphor for an indictment for the entire system of politics that we had now have. 
where there are no genuine leaders, transactional people, who don't even look to the next election. They look to the next news cycle, next focus poll results, and are guided by that instead of taking positions uh, there. The one difference in this potentially is the leader of the opposition uh, in Canada. And surprise, surprise, because he's a conviction politician, he's what, something like 15 points ahead in the polls. Even the young people in Canada uh, support him more than they support Justin Trudeau, uh, both in terms of personalities and in terms of party affiliations. That's quite an astonishing result. And I think the women are starting to gravitate to him as well. So I think there is a place for leaders who spell out their vision and show the character, strength of character, to fight for that vision, to try and implement it, to take on the administrative state. I mean, look at how the administrative, the, the, the deep state destroyed the first Trump presidency. Mm. Whatever you might think of him, there's many people who are elected in power that, that I don't like, but if they are duly elected, we have to respect if you are at all a believer in democracy and democratic government, you have to respect the will of the voters. They didn't. They set about sabotaging him from day one and they succeeded by and large. Uh, if he is re-elected, I think he will have learned from that experience and they will go after the deep state, which of course frightens them even more. Uh, but where else do we have this phenomenon? Mm. So I think we need to look at that. And as I said, internationally, the elite to elite collusion. Now you and I would say collusion rather than cooperation uh, is the one that we need to look at for this. Mm. So, what sort of vanities then do governments need to relinquish in order to get back to good governance? Do they need to do what we're considering here and, and actually start stripping out? Um, the dead wood within that administrative state, or yes, and cutting and cutting back on the relentless expansion of the state uh, budget uh, compared to GDP, it just keeps growing. Uh, you you want to increase your money here, identify where you will cut a corresponding amount somewhere else, but we don't do that, and the result is by now. I mean, this is again has shown up a major flaw in the democratic system. By now, the number of net beneficiaries exceeds the number of net contributors uh, to the public finances. And because they vote, it becomes more difficult to reverse any of that because you will pay a political price. Instead, you promise to expand state assistance to even more sectors. Uh, and again, we, we've seen that with Childcare subsidy in Australia uh, to families earning up to what is it, $250,000 a year or something. These are not needy people. This is the poor working class subsidizing the lifestyle choices of the upper classes, uh, mm -hmm. which is exactly the phenomenon we saw uh, in COVID. People who, how long do we think lockdowns would have lasted in any country? If garbage workers were told, you will, you're not allowed to work because of the threat of infection. Yeah. Yeah. So on that topic in terms of things changing, have you got any thoughts on Javier Millet in Argentina who has taken to the, his state apparatus pretty much with a chainsaw? 
Well, we, I, I hope he succeeds. Mm. Uh, I, I think we do need to pay back the tentacles of the state and return decision-making to individuals uh, and get rid of the nanny state. I mean, I, I saw some, some local council in the UK is going to ban and take away swings from children's playgrounds because they're a health and safety hazard. You know, we, we brought up increasingly risk-averse generations uh, of children. Uh, on the one hand, risk-averse. On the other, they look to the state to solve all their problems. Mm. And increasingly, this attitude, if you disagree with me, you are evil uh, and, and you should be shut up, made to shut up. Uh, we see that uh, syndrome arising as well, where the censorship demands keep rising. Uh, and there's lots of people who want to emulate what happened during COVID as a way of tackling the climate change crisis as I see it. They don't believe in, the, in respecting the outcomes of the democratic process. They don't believe in fighting to change within the system. Uh, and they take to disruptive activism. Mm. So very few governments in the Western world seem to have the clarity of thinking and the courage of convictions to reject forcefully the heckler's veto. Mm. So then on that score, so they are not doing that, they have, they're being overrun by ideologues and activists, and they're largely very, very... ideological extremists, not just activists. Mm. They're very, I think, distracted by a number of causes. So then does that open the door? Do you think that they're going to be caught napping? Because already there has been strength and arguably are they is the west still the dominant cultural power or have they actually has the east now seen a rising in terms of what's happened in china i mean india has has been particularly stable and quietly growing and not a lot of attention's been paid there there's elections i think in indonesia and malaysia going on this year is there going to be actually a, a balance a shift in power between the western hemisphere across to those in the east well, that is inevitable. That's, that's part of historical shifts. But what I have not seen and I'm not aware of any time history is any country or culture or civilization, whatever you want to call it, that has been complicit in its own self-destruction from within, quite like this. You know, you get all these hyperbolic statements about India and its great success story. Well, the proportion of people of Indian origin in New Zealand has grown from around 40,000 when I left the country in 1995, I think it was, to a quarter million today. How many people of Indian origin do you know in New Zealand who are planning to go back to India permanently. Mm, none. Same in Australia, same in the United Kingdom, same in the United States. We might criticize, a lot of us, neither I don't, but a lot of people do, immigrants do criticize uh, their host country, but they don't want to go back. And they think it's racist if you say, well, if you're that unhappy, why don't you go back? On the contrary, in the States especially, and in other countries where it's possible, a lot of them are planning on how we can bring the rest of our family over including uh, parents that we can look after. 
So if we are all so bad, irredeemably racist, why is it that millions still want to come to our country and take enormous risks, often in the boat crossings, and, and, and pay enormous monies uh, to people traffickers in order to make it here? And yet, we want to just self-flagellate, tear down everything that is important in our history and culture, and destroy what has made us into successful societies. I mean, I, I am in the very fortunate position that I have nationality of New Zealand, of Australia and Canada, all acquired at the time when I thought I'd be leaving there permanently, but they're very good countries to be nationals of. And I really don't know any three other countries that would be better. The others might be very similar. Certainly the Scandinavian countries, are, I think, are very well regarded and with good reason too. So why do we think we are amongst the worst in the world? Australia, all three, are remarkable exemplars of successful multicultural societies. And that element of tolerance and diversity and inclusivity is now being abused. And we are busy uh, adding fuel to the bonfire that is consuming us. Mm. It, it's... If you look at the people in the UK, even in the government and in the cabinet, it's interesting that it some of the immigrant people were the strongest defenders of the British way of life because they recognize why they or their parents and ancestors made the trek across to the UK and left conflicts and problems and poverty behind. But why are we intent on destroying it? Why, why don't we recognize that? I, I just don't understand that. Similarly, it's the democratic system and the rule of law that has given us a prosperous, stable society. It's the existing political system that has ensured that. Why do we want to destroy it? How much of that is due to agitation by foreign hands? I suspect a minor element. There just seems to be Mm. A lack of moral compass, a sense of desolation and a moral vacuum at the heart of Western societies, uh, which I don't understand. I'm very puzzled by because we have created the most educated, the most prosperous, the healthiest populations ever in history. And it's the systems, the process that have delivered good outcomes. Why do we want to abandon that? The Sorry. one final point on that, by the way, if you look at the vote on the voice referendum in Australia, the 60-40 split, it's approximately that split across the Western world in terms of the elites versus the people on a lot of issues. And you see the rise of the protest movements by the farmers in the Netherlands, in France, and elsewhere. Many other countries, the people are rebelling against the elites. In the UK, majority of people feel both major parties have abandoned them, don't care about them. They serve their own interests and the interests of international elites. And that disjuncture between the elites and the people, I think is a very dangerous and a very combustible element. Uh, and and we, if we don't, if we continue to ignore that, 
you see in Ireland most recently as well of course where uh, mm. the government and the opposition parties are in Northern Ireland as well uh, are denouncing their own people for, for these views if that attitude persists then I think we are creating the conditions for new uh, revolutions not all of which uh, might remain peaceful mm. I mean you mentioned before in terms of that technocratic state and in the in, in the reference of governance, but as an academic, what are your thoughts around the ideological capture within academia and the the young minds that it is now turning out as pushing through some of these ideas, and a lot of them come from elite backgrounds mm-hmm. and perpetrating this. I mean, do you are you concerned with the future of academia in the Western? Well, absolutely, now? and you had the perfect metaphor for this with the three university presidents appearing before the U.S. Congress. And these are presidents of Harvard, Pennsylvania, and MIT, three of the top brands in the whole world of higher education, and their presidents. And they could not answer a simple, straightforward, clear, moral question. And they ducked and waved and bobbed. Two of them are gone by now. The third is still in power. But they are symbolic of this transformation, where if you think about it, the key to that is in fact university education, not high school. It's a university education that trains your future generations of teachers from the primary school through to the university sector, that trains the civil servants. You you can't get any decent uh, entry-level position in the civil service without a basic degree, that trains the journalists, that trains, uh, as I said, student politics is the most common uh, training ground for future politicians. And what began as various studies departments in universities two, three decades ago, by now has spread across even into the hard sciences. And so you have moves that indigenous people's spiritual beliefs are to have the same status as the empirical sciences from the European tradition, which is a load of punk, but it's taken uh, hold quite a lot. And if you question that, then you're obviously a racist. Merit is to be thrown out in favor of identity politics. Intersectionality is important, and you have a hierarchy of victimhood and grievance. And we're just feeding this constantly. You're a victim, You, you have a grievance. If you don't recognize that you have a grievance that just shows how successfully you have been brainwashed, etc. And so a whole generation of activists rises up believing that the state owes them everything, that anything, only thing that matters is structures of power and the oppressed and the oppressors, uh, and that plays out across the board. So I think you need to begin, you need to have the courage to begin. Uh, there are some voices, in fact, in the US now saying that it's too late to reform the university sector, we need to start afresh. Mm. Well, the University of Austin is probably a really good example of that yeah. in conservative colleges like Hillsdale's. But, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think, is there a lost generation? Have we lost a generation to these ideological zealots? It looks like that, doesn't it? I'm glad I'm, I'm retired and out of it all now. I, I really don't think I could have survived in the present environment. I certainly wouldn't encourage anyone I know uh, to join the university. 
Because you were at University of Otago here in New Zealand, correct? I was for yes. So the, so the recent appointment of its new vice chancellor. Thoughts? I well, I know him from my days when he he was a student when I was there. I know him from those days. So um, that that no comment on individual persons. Mm-hmm. But Let's I, just hope he doesn't uh, apply his economic expertise with the university the same way he did with the country. Well, that's maybe. one way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it is maybe this will be more congenial to the expertise he does have. Mm. Oh, very <laughs> diplomatic of you, Ranesh, very diplomatic. Uh, looking sort of further afield in terms of the world as a whole, I mean, a good chunk of the population, nearly half, are voting this year, and of course, obviously, the big one in November in the United States. Well, we have two important ones. One is the United States, the most powerful and the most consequential democracy. The other is India, the most populous democracy in the world. Between the two of them, you Mm -hmm. are going to affect the destiny of the world. Well, let's start with. India is in April, May. Yeah, so let's start with India. I mean, because Modi has been there for a long time. And he will be there for another five, ten years. You reckon? He, he'll, he's yeah, he's old dog? opposition is hopeless. Mm. The, the, the only national opposition party is the Congress party. The Congress party has two problems. One is it still hasn't got over its sense of entitlement of being the ruling class and the ruling party in government. It still believes as if it should rightfully be in power that it was in for the first few decades after independence. And the second problem is it's a family dynasty. And the problem there is, with the Gandhi Nehru family still in charge, it has no future. Without them in charge, it has no present. And they can't square that dilemma. Uh, so I think the question for Modi is how much of a majority he will have. Last time around, he increased his majority. Remember when Modi came into power in 2014? It's the first time in 30 years that a single party had a majority number of seats in parliament. That increased subsequent time uh, election, five years later in 2019. And this time, uh, we shall see. But he, he remains overwhelmingly popular. He's easily the most popular leader of any genuinely democratic country in the world. Uh, and he's trying to reshape the country. Now, contrary to some other things I was saying earlier, again, you may like him or dislike him, but the reason he gets a lot of votes is he does seem to have some convictions. This is a country in which, anticipating what has happened in Western countries now, the Congress Party succeeded in a country that is 80% Hindu majority. The Congress Party succeeded in making Hindus feel ashamed of being Hindus in their own country. I said at the time, this is dangerous. There will come a time when there will be a huge backlash and the primary victims of that backlash will be the Muslims. You go into appeasement of rising intolerance in the way of demands of minorities. Sooner or later, that will come back to bite you. And we've seen that happen in Western countries. It happened in India. And they still haven't recovered from that. So the vision that Modi has articulated is we are not going to, at least in the rhetoric, not going to discriminate against other minorities. And I think some of the international realities pull them into line, as well as some of the domestic realities. Because you're looking at 150 million, in fact, 
closer to 200 million Muslims. So you can't, you, mm. you can't, you have no future as India as a united country if you're going to go after Muslims. Let me put it as bluntly as that. But that is different from appeasing demands of the intolerant extremists in the religion. And I think gradually that is starting to shift. So there's that element. Uh, and then the, the, the emphasis on competence, on good governance, on eliminating middlemen where corruption resides. So a lot of the digitization, which has uh, social control fears in the West, in India has been hugely beneficial in giving money directly to the intended recipients. And so the housewives have their own bank account and the government guarantees the credit rating if need be so that they can receive the payment directly instead of having it received through others. And, and these have been, I think, very popular. And he has focused on things that matter to the common people, mm. like gas connections, toilets, safety of women arising from the lack of toilet facilities in schools. Girls hit puberty and they stop going to school because they don't have the option of girls' toilets in school. And it's, it, it's an, in, you know, a sense all on their dignity to go mm -hmm. through that menstrual cycle at schools, etc. Uh, they can't, all these things Modi has done in a way that no one tackled before. Uh, and, and I think, in the Western press, you see too much of the negative stories. They're true, but it's not the whole truth. The, you, if you read only the English language press in the West, you will never understand why Modi was re-elected with an increased majority and why he will be re-elected again this year. So I think there are both the elements, that there are fears and there are good reasons for those fears. But in the end, again, you put your faith in the institutions and the practicalities of managing a country. It's a cliche that all countries like to use, but I don't think it's as true of any other country as it is of India by far, mm. element of diversity. That huge, diverse country cannot be managed if you abandon or substantially qualify and compromise any one of the three great institutions that explain its political success since independence. That's democracy, federalism, and secularism. Each of the three can be abused, and that has its own dangers. Different ones were abused at different times by different parties. The biggest threat at the moment from Modi is to the federal character and to the secular character. But you still have genuine state elections. You have genuine regional parties that are opponents of the BJP. It doesn't control the whole country with an iron grip. A lot of the key subjects are under state jurisdictions. So I think we should not ignore the reality of undercurrents that are both positive and negative. And I mean, personally, I would like Modi to be back in because I don't see that anyone else would bring these positive attributes but I'd like him to be back in with a substantially reduced majority so that they also get a wake-up call. But that's, I'm not a voter in India, so that's, that's just a preference from outside. Mm. Yeah, well, because, of course, one of India's greatest exports has always been its people. So, you know, there's uh, it's, it will be really interesting. And there is that 
I think as a Westerner, you forget how there is that decentralised element, how much in each of those provinces are really essentially little countries um, Mm -hmm. of their own, aren't they? So, And, and, and And the loss to the country, if you look at the extent of successful Indians in the business sector, in the innovative sectors, uh, in the professional classes in the US. Uh, I don't know if you're aware that Indian Americans are the highest earning income group in the United States of any ethnic group by household income. Well, Silicon Valley would grind to a halt without Indian Americans. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So the United States, yeah. I mean, you know, deja vu. Well, <laughs> do you, do you, it's an I indictment mean, of de- democracy as a system if you're going to be reduced to a choice between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. And given the two, do you choose the morally compromised or the mentally incompetent? I mean, you've got a situation now where you know, they're madly trying to bankrupt one. Um, and you look at Joe, I mean, they surely, surely Joe Biden is not going to make it to the election. I mean, do you, I just... Yeah, but then what, what, what does that mean for the democratic system? You yeah. wait until the democratic convention, after the Republican convention, so Trump is locked in. They put up a half-decent candidate against him by throwing out their primary process the results of it. They win the election. But how badly they already have a problem. Substantial chunks of Americans have lost faith in the existing system. They have lost faith in the integrity of the ballot. And majority of Democrats never conceded legitimacy to the Trump presidency majority of Republicans don't concede legitimacy to the Biden presidency. Mm-hmm. That can't be good for anyone. No. And, and yes, I, that, so I think it's too late for them to have an open primary now. So if they replace Biden now, it, it destroys the whole basis of the American system of presidential election. Yeah, but I mean, the, I think the Democrats have gotten to a point now where they like to write their own rules. They they really don't seem to be concerned. Yeah, but that will not be a even the Democratic voters' choice then, will it? No, no. What about um, Robert Kennedy Jr. as I, an independent? I, I think the mainstream media has targeted and vilified him quite unfairly. I think if you want to understand Robert Kennedy Jr., you need to, need to read his own writings, and they're voluminous and incredibly extensively referenced. Again, I don't know how he does it all. Or even listen to his speeches and listen to his interviews, including hostile interviews. He's prepared to go on and answer questions from hostile interviews. It's the others who won't have him on because they said, no, we don't want to give him publicity. Uh, so he ends up doing interviews with Tucker Carlson or with Josh Rogan. Uh, but He's a very thoughtful, very well-read, uh, and used to be the darling of the left in his battles against uh, corporate predatory behavior uh, in destroying the environment. And let's not forget, he was extremely successful as a trial lawyer. But 
he's an anti-vaxxer. How can you take him seriously? Yeah, I, I, the one thing I wonder is how much of a disconcerted vote or a disgruntled Democrat vote he will actually take, especially if Biden is put up as the candidate. A lot will depend upon whether they go ahead with presidential debates and include him. On the basis of all past presidents, they should include him because he's polling well above the 10% threshold. And if they have live debates, proper debates, between Trump and Biden and Kennedy, I think there would be an even chance that he could actually succeed in breaking through. Mm. With the choice between those three, many people would say, well, if I'm going to take a risk, I'd rather take the risk with Kennedy. Now, this, this is as things stand. Of course, it's always possible that any one of them might implode mm. at the time. Uh, and also, let us not forget, given the, his family history, he has been refused security coverage by the, by the administration, which in itself needs to be much more of a news than it is in the States. Mm. So then if Biden uh, has... This one senior moment too many, and they decide at the DNC conference that okay, we uh, we're not going to do this. We know that Kamala Harris is probably the most deeply unlikable candidate uh, that the Democrats could even ever ever dream up. So who on earth would they would they bring in? I mean, will they bring in I Gavin Newsom? Ooh. I, I mean, that is already well advanced in preparation. Uh, I, I I don't think they're going to wait for another senior moment. Uh, I, I think that decision is most likely has already been made. It's a question of how do we manage it? When is the most opportune moment, both in terms of who we want, but also in terms of it's too late for the other side to do anything about it. And that's where they have the advantage that their convention follows the Republicans. Once the Republicans are already locked in and will... Mm. I think no by this weekend. If, if Nikki Haley really does badly, even in her home state, I just don't see her surviving after that. And yep. this is open primary, if I remember right, is in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. If she doesn't do well there, uh, the only reason she might not now is that enough Democrats might think that, actually, do we really want to give momentum to the candidate who's likely to beat Biden? So we'll see. No, it will be incredibly, incredibly interesting. And it, and the outcome, I think, is something that many in the Western Hemisphere will be holding their breaths over, so we'll have to wait and see. It was- well, I, would, I would have liked Ron DeSantis to be the candidate. I, I think he was on his record. He's the Trump achievements without the Trump problems. Yes, yeah. Yeah, well, I, he's still young, though. I mean, he's in his early 40s. I think he's got time. It will be... Yeah. But, you know, each successive five-year or four-year, in the case of the U.S., administration of these types, the country is further down the drain. Mm. And, I mean, let's, and with the Democrats as well, I mean, we all saw what happened with Jacinda Ardern, you know, being propelled into the leadership six weeks out from the election and, and what that sort of thrust mm. happened here. It just nudged them enough uh, mm. to be able to form that coalition in 2017. So... You know, but really, what gave her enduring credibility, I think, was the Christchurch Mosque massacre. Mm. And whatever else I might think of her and her COVID performance, on that one, I think Jacinda was absolutely pitch perfect in her response. 
she held the country together. She was firm. She was, she reached out, and it it I, it think I think it made her uh, tenure that particular incident, and rightly, uh, and and it gave her a lot of goodwill that never drained away, mm. uh, and it gave her. I mean, I was arguing. I, I told you how one of the things I don't like about the Modi government is its, its approach to the Muslims. Uh, I, I wrote an article, I think, for the Times of India at the time, saying, isn't it strange that a country that has hardly any Muslims, a small little country in the South Pacific, should offer lessons to a country with 180 million Muslims on how to deal with your Muslim population? So, because, mm-hmm. you know, just on that point, by the way, I know that a lot of people criticize Jacinda Ardern for wearing the hijab when she meets people. It is still the case that 10 years as prime minister, Modi is yet to set foot inside a mosque. I find that absolutely appalling for a prime minister of a country with now 200 million Muslims. Mm. Well, there's, and that's the thing, isn't it? It's about um, taking the good parts and the good lessons yes. and actually sp- expanding on those, but also ex- accepting the flaws in, in terms of all things COVID, I think, yeah. You're and right. welcoming constructive criticism. Mm. I think every lead, you know, the, the old Latin um, Roman tradition, memento mori, remember you two are mortal. The guy who whispers into the triumphant Caesar's ear as the chariot goes through the cheering crowds. Uh, I think every good leader needs to give space to contrarian and, if necessary, critical voices around the table on condition that you don't go public with it. Well, if you mention it around the table, I will listen to you. I will listen to what you have to say and then decide and not penalize you in any way. So I think if you don't have such leaders around the table, you need to go out actively and look for them because they are very, very crucial correctives to the courtier and sycophant cabinet colleagues that you have around the table. The danger for Indian prime ministers always has been the sycophants, not the critics. And, you know, Modi has a lot of good cabinet ministers that he has chosen personally. Some of them I know from my professional background. Uh, and they are dedicated people with great competence and ability and integrity. And that's good. But more closely to heart, I look at uh, Kofi Annan, under whom I served in the UN system, and I look at others. Kofi had the self-confidence and the capacity to have really, really good people around him who are independent-minded, who are quite happy to give him their advice freely within the confines of confidential discussion, not go bleating about in private. And he welcomed that. And, and, and a lot of those people would have happily gone back to work with him again if, if, if it was possible for a uh, Secretary General to get a third mm. uh, And I've been out, so I don't know if, if that is true of the two successors in office with the Ban Ki-moon and Antonio Guterres, but I'd be surprised if it was the same element. The other person, Secretary General, who had that capacity and who surrounded himself with really good, top-notch people was Dag Hamshold. So I think you need that. Uh, you, you look at, in Australia, uh, you look at the Hawke Keating cabinets, really good people. The, the person I worked with most in that was uh, 
of course, Gareth Evans. They would not just do what they are told, and then they would tell the Prime Minister where to get off if, if, if there was too much interference in their portfolio. And they were guided by a vision of what they thought was good. You can agree or disagree with that. But they are not primarily motivated by self-advancement or self-preservation. And you need that. I, I think that's a very important element that every leader ought to have. Now, it was said of Jim Bolger in my time that he may not have been the most gifted person around the cabinet table, but he was the best manager of cabinet discussions and cabinet performance. And that is an important factor. So I think the same, I think, was true of Bob Hawke. He may not have been the best of the lot around the table, but he was the best of all of them in holding that group together where they could express their individual points of view uh, and come to a collective decision. So I think to go back to an earlier question, we need to rediscover the art of collegial cabinet decision-making followed by collective cabinet responsibility so you don't start criticizing it. And if you disagree fundamentally, you need to resign and step outside. And you need to have a system of uh, civil service recruitment and advice that is genuinely independent and impartial and has the larger interests of the country at heart and is not motivated by self-advancement. I think we've seen too much of that. We need to go back to good process. Good process delivers good policy development and good policy development and implementation at the end of the day is also in every country that I'm aware of, good politics. Mm. Well, you've given us some good solutions there. We might have to clip this, Ramesh, and send this off to our crew down in Wellington. Yeah, the last part, last part you can send it to... Uh, Should we send that down to, um, Grant, to, the, new to vice, the, the new vice-chancellor? Okay, yes. I'll do that. I'll do that. Hey, and look, passing my greetings. This has been a lovely walk in the park. Thank you for us for this this morning. This has been Ramesh Thakur. Um, the book, actually, if they want to get hold of it, Our Enemy, the Government, How COVID Enabled the Expansion and Abuse of State Power. Where are people best poised to get that, Ramesh? Uh, from Amazon.com. Well, there you go. That's, That's the only place, in fact. You can Excellent. get it on Kindle, you can get it in paperback. And I am sure that you are going to be doing some writing on Brownstone in regards to the outcome of the Indian election. I'll be very interested to read that in the coming months. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> hey, look, this has Thank been you, your most welcome, Ramesh Thakur, here on Counterculture with Reality Check Radio. With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom. Simply visit www.realitycheck.radio forward slash donate to make a difference today.